Welcome to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate, where we discuss e-commerce issues and whether our guest today automated, delegated, or eliminated them and why. Your host is Will Christensen, co-founder of Data Automation. And again, welcome to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate. So obviously there's a process around inventory management and inventory forecasting, and we could spend five or six episodes just talking about inventory. Which process do you want to focus on? What would you say is the the process we're going to focus on today? So we're going to talk about replenishment. It's the process of deciding how much inventory you need to bring in, which exact SKUs do you need to bring in, and where do you want them in your supply chain at what time? Okay. I love it. And I think that's, you probably got a lot of people kind of sitting on the edge of their seats at this point, because I think replenishment is a huge issue and it is across any e-commerce business, right? This is, this is something that is very, very, very tricky. So tell me a little bit about what this process looked like or looks like before you help someone automate, delegate, or eliminate the process. What does it look like when it's done manually? Well, replenishment is a big data process. You have to make a lot of decisions on each and every item at the SKU level. So it's very intensive, a lot of data collection, a lot of dots to connect, and a lot of heuristics to abide by where we don't really know what is going to happen. We don't really know how our decisions are going to impact or be impacted by the future. And we have to make big decisions with little data to rely on. So it's hard, complex, and very fragile. Understood. So so as you're looking at that manual process, it can be about pulling data from, you know, eight or 10 different sources and having to manually check each one of those sources to see what that inventory looks like at any given time. You know, it can be a really tricky piece there to look at. Yes. Even if you have just one data point, let's say your inventory is in Amazon and you look at all of their distribution centers as a big black box. It's still very confusing. You have long supply times, you have minimum order quantities or MOQs, and each supplier does those differently. You have demand patterns, you have holidays, you have sales dates like uh, Prime Day or Black Friday. You have to take all of that into consideration and figure out what to do with it each and every time. That sounds like it could get really confusing really fast in terms of some of the the different inputs and outputs there as you're deciding to look at that and decide where it goes. Three questions that we often like to ask ourselves about the inputs and outputs are, where is the data now? Where does it need to go? And what happens to it in between? As I, as I read off those three questions and we're talking about replenishment, what does that spark for you? Well, some of the data is readily available or very easy to obtain, like answering the question, how many units do you have on hand in Amazon? That's one piece of data that I actually pretty much trust trust Amazon to give me the right number. There are other pieces of data that not only you don't have, they don't exist. How many units 
will your customers want in two months' time? Who will be your competitors for the keyword in three months' time or in two weeks' time? What will be the global demand? I mean, take now, for example, we're in the middle of Corona lockdown. Nobody predicted Corona lockdown, but you have to run your inventory through it. Yeah. Absolutely. So so how do you predict the unpredictable? Well, you don't. You build a model that takes the fact that you don't know the future into account and creates a managing process with the initial understanding that we do not know the future and we will not know the future. Totally hear you. So that model has to exist and has to overcome, be ready for some of these difficulties that come through. What does that look like, you know, in terms of creating a model or or working a model and making it so that it can handle some of these unforeseen things? What do you have to do? Well, I say it's like driving a car. You have to have a plan. Everybody I talk to says, so you do forecasting. And I say, no, I don't, because we can't forecast the future. We do a plan, which is like the fact that you go into your car in one city and you plan to get to your job at a different city or to your parents at a different city. You have a plan. You know where you need to turn. You go on the highway. You know where you go off the highway. But you also have flexibility and you don't take your eyes off the road. It's very much the same way. We need to have an agile system with a quick feedback mechanism that tells us, okay, the road is free to go, you can go faster, or there is a traffic jam here, look for a different way. We need that feedback coming to us constantly. And then we adjust. Interesting. So if you were looking at it in terms of the difference between the manual and the automated or the we don't have a model and now we have a model, what would you say the biggest difference is? The size of the decisions. In order to have the model, we need to make a lot of small, fast decisions. In the old process, we didn't have information, so we guessed. And then money was the king, and we tried to make everything cheaper. So we would make huge decisions. How much inventory to buy for the entire Q4, sometimes for half a year. And we make them a lot of time ahead because buying such a big amount requires a lot of time for negotiations, for production, for shipping. Everything takes time. So you have these huge, huge decisions that take a long time. And by the time you get the feedback returning to you, they're not relevant anymore. So by making smaller decisions, you're able to get the feedback or the feedback loop closed faster, and therefore you can react more rapidly to the situations at hand. Correct. I like it. Tell me, what software do you use as you're taking this sort of thing? And I love to hear software, not only just that you're working on with replenishment, but I also love to hear software just in general for you know, that you're using to automate different pieces of your life. So I, I just, I love to, I'm a little bit of a software junkie. So I'd love, love to hear about what pieces of software you're using. Well, for this inventory replenishment system, I'm using a tool that was designed for the U.S. Army's uniform logistics during their time in the deserts 
in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this was a huge operation because each soldier in each unit has a different task and the uniforms are adjusted to the task. And you can't do partial kit. A soldier that didn't get his shoes or her shirt or their night goggles is a soldier that cannot perform to full capacity is a soldier whose life is in danger and the other part of this complex problem is the fact that the army has a huge amount of suppliers for uniforms and they're all big suppliers they are not going to change their entire computer system not even for the u.s army and so the solution is a very small piece of software that knows how to work as a standalone or integrate with just about anything with any ERP system that has the data you need and with any system that does your ordering through very simple flat files. And I love it because if I get somebody to put the data in, I can work with somebody who's still working with a notebook as long as the data comes in to me on a computer. But I can also work with the most sophisticated ERP systems. Very, very independent, which I love. So tell me, what are the different pieces of software that you use to make that happen? Well, I said it was very, very simple. I use Excel. So if a customer comes to me and they're using, they're selling only on Amazon, it's very, very easy. I pull in the data from Amazon and fire back an answer. This is what you need to order from your suppliers. If it's an omni-channel client, they have several sources of inventory, several locations like a 3PL, Amazon, their own store, their own Excel files. We just figure it out. We create translation point where we figure out how their inventory comes in, what kind of corrections does it need. I have an example, a client that uses currently two channels, but in the past he was up to, I think, five. And in each channel, at least one SKU got a different name. So if you use an SKU name in Amazon and you want to make a change, you get a new SKU name and the old SKU name is lost. But the system can only work with one SKU name per item. So we just fix it in the process of moving the data from one point to the other. Interesting. So as you're looking at these uh, different pieces, what processes do you use that allow you or help you to decide when to automate, when to delegate or when to eliminate? So as you're looking at, you know, replenishment or you're looking at the different pieces of what you need to do, what process do you use uh, when you're going to decide whether or not something should be automated, delegated or eliminated? For me, the first thing is the repeatability factor. Anything that I can write down in such a way that a computer or a three-year-old can follow the instructions. A computer is more stupid usually. Sorry, computers. It has to be automated. If it's extremely predictable and repeatable, there is no point that a person will do that repeatedly. There's just no sense. So the first thing that I automate or will automate is the data processing, pulling the data from one system and moving it to the next and pressing the buttons. I need to come in and look at the results and apply my brain to it. I don't need to set everything up. What we're going to talk about today is a hairy process, one that's taken a lot of your time and effort. And why don't you introduce that process to us today? What are we, what are we talking about? Well, it, the process today involves taking orders that come in through online and basically moving those through to customers. And the other process would be the flow of the good 
goods that need to move from one location to another. And usually that one location that we want the goods to end up is at Amazon's FBA warehouses. And that's it in a nutshell. And in between, the process has usually involved a lot of human intervention so that there's humans involved in every part of the step to accomplish this task. And it's been a doozy trying to find the best software or the best systems that would allow that process to take place on autopilot. And we certainly didn't find one at first or something that would at least get us halfway there. Let's jump in here a little bit and just understand you know, how this came about. When was it that you started selling on FBA? I would say we go back probably seven years ago. So walk us through the process for those listeners that don't spend as much time with that. I think most of us in the world have probably bought something on Amazon and it's come through and we can see the little prime label and it's going to get to us within two days. Help us understand what does that process look like for that item to make it to FBA? Well, that that, that process can take a lot of time, take a lot of effort, and in some cases, a lot of homework. Every category has certain either now, today, which is different than seven years ago, either restrictions or paperwork or approvals just to get things into Amazon warehouse. So with your product, let's call it a headset, right? If I wanted to sell one headset on FBA, what would that look like to get it into FBA? And let's start with what's the advantage of having that headset on FBA as a seller? And then, you know, just briefly that part. And then after you've explained what the advantage is, just walk me through, like, if I just wanted that one headset to be sold on my account, but fulfilled by Amazon, what would that look like? So the major advantage today, having the prime badge today on Amazon means you have access to 150 million users. And that includes both consumers, business and government users today. That wasn't the case three, four or five years ago, but today you have access to those 150 million users that are online buying through Amazon. From that, you have the advantage of Amazon's presence globally. If you happen to sell that one headset in the US, sometimes Amazon will move that headset into another market for you. And that's only if you are on the FBA side, which is what customers see as the prime badge. The other advantage to having that prime badge today is that Amazon Amazon has implemented a host of new programs directed at those FBA or Prime items where they can put that one headset into your customer's car. They can put it into somebody's garage or house. So the conveniences to the users that are Prime users are way far than what they used to be. And they offer that user a number of options that you can't do on your own today if you have your own website. So can you sell that one headset without the prime badge? Yes, you can. But according to our numbers, what we see in terms of a velocity, we can see anywhere between a three to eight X increase in velocity and sales just by having that one headset be on, on the prime or FBA program. So totally worth it in terms of the effort it takes to get it into FBA's hands. Correct. And sometimes when you start, that may not be the approach because if you're completely new to Amazon, you want to get your feet wet. Maybe you don't start off on FBA to, to understand what the process is today because it's way more complex today than it ever was seven years ago when we started. And sometimes you take a few baby steps and then when you're ready and you're ready to put whatever item you want to go on FBA, you have some of that process down. So let's let's talk about that process a little bit at Data Automation and on the 
podcast, we often talk about this idea of three questions that help us get towards some automating process. And usually what we start with is where's the data now? Where does it need to go? And then what needs to happen to the data in between? And in this case, the data we're talking about is actually all related to that headset that we're trying to get on there. So let's answer that question. Where is the data now? Or where is the information about this headset? And where does it need to go? Well, the information, all of it resides mostly on the Amazon side. And we're able to extract that data using a software platform. But that software platform has to be able to not only talk to Amazon, but it has to do a number of other things. And so as data flows from Amazon to the software, you have to direct the data somewhere, uh, whether it be sales numbers, whether it be orders, whether it be inventory, whether it be stock levels. And so there's a bit of an orchestration of data that needs to happen so that you're receiving data, you're able to analyze the data, and then take action on the data or execution, which is the most important thing. And so the execution of getting information, whether it's to Amazon about customers and customer information you need to update, or products flowing into Amazon, if you go down the FBA path, all of that becomes very relevant as you start growing and scaling up. As you start scaling up, if you don't have a system in place and a team in place that knows how to properly manage that flow of data, a lot of things can go wrong very quickly and can affect you, affect how you sell on Amazon as well as your reviews, counts being held or suspended. So a number of things, if this data is not properly moving or not moving on time or in a, a manner within the metrics that Amazon wants you to be, a lot of a lot of bad things can happen. Gotcha. So on the podcast, I always like to ask people what softwares they're using. One, because I'm a bit of a software junkie. I'm always into whatever people are using and testing the newest software that's out there. What software are you using to get some of this data from Amazon and push things back and forth as far as your stock levels and things like that? Well, we use a combination of things. We have a platform called Scubana, and that's our main, I'd call it an aggregator of data, where we're able to receive all the information from Amazon as well as other platforms that we're on, whether it's eBay, Walmart, or others. I think individuals might call that an inventory management system, right? Uh, an IMS or a WMS are two common or uh, ERP. ERP is the other one. So this is like in the ballpark, if you're looking at a big enterprise, it'd be like an SAP or Oracle. And then there's other smaller pieces, like maybe a ship station, which isn't completely a great comparison, but along those lines, let's call it ship station plus. All right. For a lot of users that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and ship station has its own realm. We can get into some of the nitty gritty of that, but I, I totally agree with you there. There are pieces of pushing inventory back and forth between different systems. And obviously ship stations focused on the shipping world of things. I know from our past experience, you use both platforms. Correct. That is correct. And that's also because we're able to do a ton of integrations. And then once you start scaling up, and for those listeners, whether you're at the beginning of the spectrum or as you're somewhere in the middle or further along, as you keep growing, you will get to some point where you may realize there is no one perfect software that does everything you want when it comes to working on Amazon. And that's where we got a few years ago and how we got connected. 
Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly how Rolando and I started this journey of working together on different processes. Now that we've talked a little bit of software, let's talk about this FBA workflows piece of thing or the FBA, the workflow you were doing. If I remember correctly, you mentioned that, you know, this data originally is on amazon.com and, and is that in a report of some kind on Amazon? How are they telling you what you should be sending to FBA? Because if I remember correctly, you told me that this item, let's say this headset that I want to sell an FBA, I got to package it up, label it in a very specific way, and then send it off to FBA so they can then put it on the website or put it on amazon.com with that prime badge. Tell me about that process. What's that look like if I have that one headset that I want to send off? So the report that Amazon has, and as well as a dashboard that also resides on Amazon. And for us, we have about 230 items that we are sending on a regular basis to those Amazon FBA warehouses to, to have that prime badge put on it. And so managing when those items need to be replenished, when they're running out, when they're going to run out and doing that predictive analysis, Amazon has a fairly good report on that, plus the history and seasonality. And so they will tell you, hey, that one headset you have or that one headset you have left, it's going to run out in two weeks. So you may want to replenish that one headset starting today because it takes a while for that whole process, the moment you start the packaging, shipping, and then arriving at Amazon's warehouse, it could be two or three weeks from the moment you hit go. So in order to have 230 items, all the trains flowing at the right time, knowing when you have to send them, knowing when they're going to run out, knowing when there's going to be some seasonality or spikes in demand is very key to having success on Amazon. Because when you run out of a product, it doesn't immediately start selling the way it used to. You have loss of sales when you run out. And it's important to know when you're going to run out so that that never happens or that you eliminate that from happening. Well, so and that's especially relevant when we're talking about, you know, some of the supply problems that we've been having in China right now and some of the other things, right? Like sometimes it's about metering that demand so that you don't run out. You can keep some of that velocity rolling. So yeah, huge opportunity and huge detriment that could come to the business if you're not monitoring that closely. Right. I'm glad you said that. Even though we do have to do some monitoring some of these processes can be put on autopilot. And this is where you and I have done a lot of work in trying to automate some of those processes because the more humans you have doing things, more tasks, the more complex the workflow can be because humans will make mistakes, will make errors, will input data that sometimes is not relevant. And all of those mistakes over the course of a year, two, three, four, all of those add up in terms of dollars and cents but more so like accuracy. So every time that we make a mistake, which we don't often, of course, <laughs> it costs us a lot of time to fix it and money to like resend a, a shipment, right? So our, our biggest cost is error and software allows you to reduce that error as much as possible. Just because I found from seeing myself and other humans do tasks, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're a human and you're gonna make a mistake. So that's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I love what you said there. And I think it's actually totally valid. We're, we're huge fans of, of FreeUp and a, a lot of the other, you know, I use Upwork all the time for, for sourcing talent for different things. But, but something you said there, I really want to nail this home for people. I know a lot of people that they focus so much on the delegate part of automate, delegate, eliminate that they 
they forget that error piece and that they feel like, no, a human being is always the right answer. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes the right answer is to eliminate the process entirely. And sometimes the right answer isn't a human. It's a piece of software or it's a it's a script that needs to be developed. And I think that that key point that I want to pull out for our listeners is what you said. It's accuracy. People often have a difficult time quantifying not only the amount of dollars, but the amount of time, which obviously turns into dollars or money that they spend on those errors. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with you know, you obviously have come to the conclusion that errors equal money and you've kind of dug into like, oh, yeah, there's time that I'm spending on that. Tell us how you came up with that. Where did you decide what an error cost your business? Yeah, so I think a lot of at least in the shipping business, like it's also important not only for our time, but also customer retention. So as an e-commerce seller before I worked with a 3PL in the U.S., that would constantly make errors or constantly I would have to send in an order and then send them an email three or four days later to remind them. And that extra energy as a customer that it aggravated me so much that I left them like very soon. And so we knew that like being accurate and being correct and not making mistakes is like critical to us ever surviving another day. <laughs> and I saw how much I personally was making mistakes, even though it was my own business. And I was sitting there and I was trying so hard to make sure that everything worked. And I still was creating errors myself. And when I saw that, I knew that like the only solution was to have software do it for us. And that's where I like really pushed to like get the software working and get my employees to use it. Because once you get software, it doesn't mean that like your employees want to use it nor care to use it because they're not used to it. And there's a whole process to even teach them like how to use it and why they should be using it and why it's important. So just because you get software doesn't mean you're done. <laughs> the job just begins when that happens, you know, but more so like accuracy. So every time that we make a mistake, which we don't often, of course, <laughs> it costs us a lot of time to fix it and money to like resend a, a shipment, right? So our, our biggest cost is error and software allows you to reduce that error as much as possible. Just because I found from seeing myself and other humans do tasks, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're a human and you're gonna make a mistake. So that's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I love what you said there and I think it's actually totally valid. We're, we're huge fans of, of FreeUp and a, a lot of the other, you know, I use Upwork all the time for, for sourcing talent for different things. But, but something you said there, I really want to nail this home for people. I know a lot of people that they focus so much on the delegate part of Automate, Delegate, Eliminate that they, they forget that error piece and that they feel like, no, a human being is always the right answer. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes the right answer is to eliminate the process entirely. And sometimes the right answer isn't a human. It's a piece of software or it's a, it's a script that needs to be developed. And I think that that key point that I want to pull out for our listeners is what you said. It's accuracy. People often have a difficult time quantifying not only the amount of dollars, but the amount of time, which obviously turns into dollars or money that they spend on those errors. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with 
you, you know, you obviously have come to the conclusion that errors equal money and you've kind of dug into like, oh yeah, there's time that I'm spending on that. Tell us how you came up with that. Where did you decide what an error cost your business? Yeah. So I think a lot of, at least in the shipping business, like it's also important not only for our time, but also customer retention. So as an e-commerce seller before, I worked with a 3PL in the U.S. that would constantly make errors or constantly I would have to send in an order and then send them an email three or four days later to remind them. And that extra energy as a customer that it aggravated me so much that I left them like very soon. And so we knew that like being accurate and being correct and not making mistakes is like critical to us ever surviving another day. <laughs> and I saw how much I personally was making mistakes, even though it was my own business. And I was sitting there and I was trying so hard to make sure that everything worked. And I still was creating errors myself. And when I saw that, I knew that like the only solution was to have software do it for us. And that's where I like really pushed to like get the software working and get my employees to use it. Because once you get software, it doesn't mean that like your employees want to use it nor care to use it because they're not used to it. And there's a whole process to even teach them like how to use it and why they should be using it and why it's important. So just because you get software doesn't mean you're done. <laughs> the job just begins when that happens, you know? You've been listening to Automate, Delegate, Eliminate, hosted by... Christensen.